You are listening to the Apex Hour, hosted by Ryan Paul on KSUU Thunder 91.1. This show allows more personal time with our guests, allowing them to give us their stories and opinions. We will also give you new music to listen to, hoping you enjoy some new sounds and genres. Welcome to this episode of the Apex Hour. Welcome to the Apex Radio Hour. I am producer Evan Miller, and I'm joined with Apex director and professor of history, Ryan Paul, and our special guest, Nate Schweber. Turning it over to you, Ryan. Thanks, Evan. We are so excited to uh, to have Nate Schweber in the studio with us today. We're also joined today by the ac- academic coordinator of Outdoor Pathways, Kevin Kuntz, who's going to chat with us a little bit as well about what we've been talking about. So Nate Schweber uh, is the author of... Uh, <laughs> We've been talking about this all day. Mm -hmm. The author of uh, an amazing book called This America of Ours, Bernard and Avis DeVoto and the Forgotten Fight to Save the Wild. And he's on campus to chat with us a little bit about uh, the book. And what I'd like to do first, Nate, is kind of talk about kind of a how we get to now question. So can you tell us a little bit about where you're from, what you do, and, and how this book came about. Sure. Uh, thanks, Ryan. Um, I uh, I was born and raised in Missoula, Montana, and now I live in New York City. I work as a freelance journalist, and um, I do a lot of uh, crime reporting in New York City, but I'm really homesick for the West. I still miss Montana, but I, I love the whole West, and so I've always been trying to uh, pitch story ideas to editors, uh, usually in New York about you know conservation in the west it's something i'm really interested in and that eventually led me to um these two wonderful characters bernard and avis devoto uh bernard devoto was a native utahn he's the first uh uh he's the first person born in utah to ever win a pulitzer prize but he wrote a great bunch of histories about the west he also did some really hard-hitting conservation journalism so when i finally uh met the devotos i got fascinated with them and that eventually turned into this book project so let's let's talk a little bit about bernard devoto so this is one of those guys that obviously many people today have no idea who he is but if we were living in the 1940s and 50s in america we absolutely would know who this guy is, and and probably his wife as well. Can you give us a little backstory of him? Well, uh, yeah, he was one of the most prominent writers of the middle of the 20th century. His name was mentioned in the company of people like Hemingway and Rachel Carson and, uh, um, uh, you know, F. Scott's F. Scott Fitzgerald. So he was he was super prominent in his day. He was a columnist for Harper's Magazine. He had a reputation for being. Um, stating very strong opinions, sometimes stating very controversial opinions, and writing a lot about conservation. But he was also a, a an expert on Western history. He wrote a trilogy of uh, Western historical nonfiction that really told the story, uh, you know, basically from like, you know, when Columbus sailed to when Lewis and Clark made it to the Pacific Ocean. So he was, uh, he was fascinated with uh, Western U.S. history, but particularly fascinated with 
with conservation. And his wife, Avis Devoto, she was his editor. She was every bit his um, uh, intellectual match. Um, they shared a lot in common. They both loved books. They both had uh, very strong opinions that they were not uh, afraid to express. And, you know, the pop culture tie in with Avis Devoto is uh, that her best friend was uh, the aspiring, then unknown cookbook uh, author, Julia Child. So Avis and Julia, their friendship is very well known in pop culture. They've been in uh, books, they've been on TV shows, they've been in um, a movie. But, you know, um, what people kind of don't really realize is that, you know, Julia Child was a real friend and ally of both Bernard and Avis Devoto while they were waging their fight, fights in the middle of the 20th century for public lands conservation. What, what I, I like about the, in your book, you first of all, you paint this amazing picture of Devoto's library yeah. at home, this study full of yeah. books and maps and, yeah. and just this kind of very uh, uh, Don Quixote type yeah. of guy in some ways. Yeah. But but I also like the fact that that he is, a uh, even before a historian, he's a writer, mm-hmm. right? He's crafting the right, he, he understands the craft of writing because he's not just writing history books, which will become popular. I mean, these are like Book of the Month Club type Correct. history books yeah. as well, mm-hmm. right? But uh, but he's writing for magazines. Can yep. you talk about the magazines of the day in that regard? Yeah. Uh, Bernard DeVoto once called himself a literary department store. He would, you know, he would write anything for anybody. So he wrote a lot of different things. You know, he wrote this this monthly opinion column for Harper's Magazine. Uh, but he also, Harper's didn't pay him very much. So he also wrote serialized fiction for the big glossy magazines of his day, like the Saturday Evening Post. Uh, these things were like the Netflix series of their day. Um, so yeah, so he wrote, you know, he he wrote opinion columns. He wrote short fiction. He did write some novels. They weren't particularly memorable, but he wrote novels. Um, but, you know, his his strongest stuff, his most lasting stuff, the stuff that uh, cemented his literary legacy was this great trilogy of uh, Western historical nonfiction that he wrote. And he comes to that late in his life, right? Like he, he tries the novel first. Yeah. Right? I, I'm a novelist. For, mm-hmm. I'm a great writer in this regard. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but he comes to that late. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what, what is the moment when he realizes that maybe this is the way he needs to go? Well, he, again, he's, he was born and raised in Utah. He was fascinated with the West. He always loved the West. He always wrote about the West. And it, it, but he didn't live in the West as an adult. Uh, when he was uh, a young man, he uh, moved from Utah to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he enrolled at Harvard University. And he ended up settling in Cambridge, but he could never stop thinking about the West and missing the West and studying the West. So as he was growing and developing, you know, it just the stuff that he wrote that he put uh, the most of his heart into the stuff that he wrote that resonated with the most people because it was the stuff that he cared about the most. It turned out to be his writings about the West. He could write forgettable novels. He could write forgettable short stories. He could write, you know, opinion columns that, you know, riled a lot of people up. But the stuff of his that he wrote that was truly lasting because it really came from his heart was all about the West. And I think that it's interesting to me that how oftentimes in history and, and in people's lives, you have these moments that that exp- happen and change the course of what they're thinking about, right? Mm-hmm. So Bernard DeVoto is uh, thinking about the West. He's writing. He's been successful in a couple books, and he's going to write a book about, he writes this book about Lewis and Clark, mm-hmm. and, and, and you have this amazing story about the 
the Boy Scout troop that that writes him a fan letter. Oh yeah, right, mm-hmm. and uh, and draws a picture of it and beg beg him mm-hmm. to take them on this journey. Yeah, but he decides he's going to do the one thing that everybody seems to be doing in post World War II, which is the Great American Road Trip. Yes, mm-hmm. right, and he's going to correct me if I'm wrong. From Cambridge to to the Pacific, follow the Lewis and Clark Trail. Yeah, correct. And and you have this description of this of this of him doing this, and it reminds me of. Uh, uh, did you ever see 101 Dalmatians? No. And there's Cruella okay. DeVille in the cartoon driving all manically with their big long cigarette. I, I, I'm that's the he probably Bernard DeVoto. I think like about that, that yeah. right as mm-hmm. they as they do this and as they're headed on this journey with their two sons, they have this kind of moment at this steakhouse in Wyoming, right? Is it Wyoming oh, or Montana? Eastern Montana? And they have this this moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you? Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, 1946, he was doing research for this book of his that was going to feature Lewis and Clark. He was going to take the, the research trip of a lifetime with his family. And he started to, he was really ecstatic about taking this trip, but he started when he got to the Dakotas to pick up signs that something was wrong in the West, that there was, you know, there was possibly an anti-public lands plot um, afoot. And so he knew to keep his eyes and years open and he got to uh, eastern Montana to the little uh, ranching community of Miles City, Montana and he went to a a bar restaurant called the Range Riders Cafe and he went there because he loved to eat and he knew that the Range Riders Cafe had the best steak dinner in America Uh, he could get a steak for $1.50 there that was better than anything that he could get in Boston or New York City or Philadelphia. I have to ask, does, does the Range Rider Cafe still exist? Yes, it's still there in Montana. It's now, a, I think it's a pizza restaurant and maybe a museum. It's it's not, it's it's changed since the 1940s, but there's still photos of it. People have sent me photos like, this is still in Miles City. But anyway, so when they were in this um, this bar restaurant when it was really rocking in Miles City in 1946, he uh, eavesdropped and he overheard a quote very loud, very drunk cattle unquote at the bar and he got a tip from this uh, from eavesdropping on this guy and he did find out that there was a plan uh, being put together in the west to sell off hundreds of millions of acres of public lands as many as 230 million acres of public lands which is like the size of texas and california put together it's like as much uh, land as teddy roosevelt put under conservation protection so yes they took this really epic road trip across the west because now they weren't just studying lewis and clark they were trying to uncover details about this plot and it took them all across the west they met with a bunch of uh, notable people like wallace stegner the novelist who said national parks are america's best idea they met with ansel adams the photographer they met with a uh, Forest Service official in Ogden, Utah, who was able to get them their big scoop. He got them all the details they were looking for, and they were able to use that to write a blockbuster article that saved as many as 230 million acres of our public lands from being sold off. Which is interesting in that that he turns into almost this investigative journalist, yeah. right? You mm-hmm. can you can just see him at night trying to put these pieces together exactly. as he's asking people out and people in back rooms and corners and... Yes. And having this thing, and I think it's important to think about, maybe you could talk a little bit about the state of conservation in this. So this is, you know, we're talking, you know, 30, 40 years after Teddy Roosevelt, Mm -hmm. after the Antiquities Act. Uh, The National Park Service has been around for, at this point, what, 30 years, maybe? Yeah, about 30 years, exactly. We're familiar with how that's working out. So, but but obviously, there's been steps back, right? I mean... 
Franklin Roosevelt's done some conservation, but but mostly with the CCC yeah. for employment. Mm-hmm. So as Devoto's thinking about this, where is the state of conservation sitting in the American West? Yeah, great question. Uh, you know, conservation in conservation history, there's times when conservation has been on offense and times when it has been on defense. And so, you know, starting with Teddy Roosevelt and his creation of the U.S. Forest Service, that was an era when conservation was really on offense. Um, after that, conservation really went on the defense, you know, through the roaring 20s. Um, you know, those eras of, of bonanza farming brought on the Dust Bowl, the Dirty 30s, and that's when Franklin Roosevelt entered the picture. And uh, once again, when, 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 the, when the next Roosevelt was in office, conservation was once again on, on offense. There were new conservation agencies created. There was the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC. But then, you know, Franklin Roosevelt dies in 1945, and um, – and, Harry Truman was the new president, and he was not a great conservationist, but more so uh, what happened was there were some uh, members of Congress that were really anti-conservation and really public lands. And in the Truman years, these members of Congress, they gained a tremendous amount in power. And the main one of those uh, characters is a guy that I write about, uh, Nevada Senator Pat McCarran, who was a, 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 a... wonderfully, spectacularly bad guy in a whole lot of ways. But um, Pat McCarran wanted to uh, basically sell off all the acres under the jurisdiction of the Bureau of Land Management. The Bureau of Land Management was founded in 1946. It had been a much more activist, uh, much more, much stronger conservation agency. Pat McCarran was somebody who weakened it and turned it into kind of a enfeebled conservation agency, the Bureau of Land Management. So conservation was very much on the defensive come the late 1940s, and that's when the Devotos entered the picture. I've often thought, as I've been reading, as I read your book about, I wonder if part of this, I, I can't seem to separate this idea from the atomic age. Right. I mean, I, I'm wondering as we're thinking about, yeah. you know, no one talks about conservation at the Nevada test site. Yeah. Well, right? it, that, well yeah. I mean, people do. But yeah. I mean, that's not, you know, Truman is thinking about a lot of other things yeah. than than the, the American West, especially if we're thinking about feeding the world yeah. and and everything and all of the new minerals and things that need to come out of that. Yeah. But but I want to we're going to take our first break here in a second. But I want to uh, come just so you to. I want to come back and talk about the backstory of Senator McCarran. Okay. Because you're right. He is this juicy, I mean, almost this kind of melodramatic Disney villain. Right. Yeah. Cart- so, cartoon villain. Yeah. Is, is yeah. Very like, much you fun. must pay the rent. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I, I think he's like that. And I, his backstory really supports that because he and Devoto, I mean, they're both, I mean, McCarran is kind of brutalized a little mm-hmm. bit as a kid. Mm-hmm. So let's take our first break. And this is a song um, that Woody Guthrie originally wrote. Yes. Uh, and did not become the big hit that we it hadn't become a big hit yet. But this mm-hmm. is a song called This Land is Your Land. Uh, and, and you've asked, uh, this is by Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Do you yes. want to tell us a little bit about why you chose this song? For oh, us? well, you know, obviously the message of the song fits perfectly with my book, This Land is Your Land. And I wrote it. Uh, the, I wrote my book in New York City, and much of it I wrote during the pandemic. And every Saturday night, there was a brilliant radio show on my favorite radio station in New York City, WFUV. It was called The Boogie Down with Binky Griptite. Great name. And this uh, gentleman, Binky Griptite, he plays guitar in the Dap Kings. So I figured the pairing the great Woody Guthrie lyric with this cool track that Binky Griptite plays guitar on would be perfect for this radio show. Okay, This Land is Your Land by Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Mm-hmm. 
That was This Land is Your Land by Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Um, you're listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Thank, thank you, Evan. We're uh, excited here to be with Nate Schweber, uh, the author of This America of Ours, Bernard and Avis DeVoto, and the Forgotten Fight to Save the Wild. We're joined in the studio by the academic coordinator for Outdoor Pathways, my good friend Kevin Kuntz. And we left off talking about Senator McCarran. Kevin, do you want to? Yeah, so I, 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 I love kind of this visualization you've given to Senator McCarran as this, this cartoon villain. Now, are we talking about the same, when, when we say McCarran, are we talking about the same name that the Las Vegas airport was previously named after? Oh, yes. That's the same Pat McCarran. And you say previously because, you know, uh, people are starting to look back at Pat McCarran at some of the, a lot of the stuff that he did. And that's why his name is no longer on the Las Vegas airport. Um, you know, Pat McCarran is a guy who is, uh, you know, born uh, on a sheep ranch in Nevada. He, you know, he and Bernard DeVoto had, a, they kind of had a lot in common in a lot of ways. You know, they both, you know, were born to, you know, Catholic dads. They both, uh, you know, brought books into the mountains with them when they were kids. They were both very ambitious. Uh, their ambitions both led them to the Northeast where they had distinguished careers and they both had reputations for being kind of mavericks and free thinkers. Uh, uh, well, iconoclasts anyway. Um, so, uh, so Pat McCarran, um, you know, come the he he gets into uh, he 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 campaigns as a big supporter of Franklin Roosevelt, and when Roosevelt has his landslide victory in 1932, after years of Herbert Hoover and the Depression, he finally achieves his dream, and he's a U.S. senator, and he immediately starts to attack Franklin Roosevelt. And one of the things that he did was Franklin Roosevelt had created a conservation agency to help protect uh, parts of the West that had been uh, really ecologically damaged, the deserts and the grasslands and the prairies and the canyonlands. So Franklin Roosevelt created an agency called the Grazing Service. And Pat McCarran eventually would, you know, use his power on the Senate Appropriations Committee to uh, defund the Grazing Service, and he ended up killing it. So the Grazing Service got smashed down into what is today the Bureau of Land Management. That happened in 1946. And, you know, Pat McCarran was sort of the godfather of the Sagebrush Rebellion, that movement that came along in the late 1970s and early 80s to sell off public lands in the West. Um, and the other thing about Pat McCarran is that he had kind of a an ideological twin in the United States Senate, uh, somebody who he was a father figure to, a mentor for. And that person was Joe McCarthy, uh, the senator from Wisconsin and the infamous demagogue. Um, uh, Pat McCarran was a, uh, a communist, uh, paranoid hunting zealot in the 1940s. And Joe McCarthy really became, um, you know, the 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 person that he was by emulating Pat McCarran, by acting like him. So, you know, by rights, we should really not talk about the McCarthy era and McCarthyism. We should talk about the McCarran era and McCarranism. But Joe McCarthy was a genius at getting attention. He was great at attracting publicity. Um, but uh, Pat McCarran was a genius at legislating. I mean, he, he was, you know, he was a, a 
bad guy, but he was incredibly effective at, at what he wanted to do. And so all the laws that really codify McCarthyism, they were passed by Pat McCarran. And these are some of the most oppressive laws that have ever been passed in our history. There was a concentration camp law that Pat McCarran passed. So yeah, he, you know, because his, you know, his two fields of, of, you know, supreme bad doing, uh, were, you know, public lands in the West, which in the 1940s, not a lot of people outside the West really cared about. So he was able to really fly under the radar. And then in the McCarthy era, while he was making these laws, nobody was really paying so much attention to Pat McCarran, the person making these laws. They were paying attention to Joe McCarthy, the person who was saying outlandish things and making huge headlines across America. But both of those things, both of those movements, the anti-public lands movement and the, and the McCarthy era, they come together in this character of Pat McCarran. So how does this this sheep farmer's kid actually become a senator from Nevada in the first place well he had he had run he had run several times for Senate and, you know, he watched his dad in Nevada. His dad was very characteristic of a lot of people in Nevada in the, in the early 1900s. Um, you know, Nevada is the driest state in America, even drier than Arizona and, and Utah. And there were less than a hundred people that owned uh, as much as 75% of all the private land in Nevada. And this, this was land that had access to water. So this was the land that you you could survive on as an agriculturalist. And so McCarran grew up watching just a few people monopolize all this, uh, all this arable land. And his father got pushed away from it. And his father would lose his ranch. And people like his father got pushed away from it and, and lost their ranch. And so, so McCarran really grew up hating these oligarchs in Nevada. And these were all out-of-staters. You know, Nevada wasn't owned by Nevadans. Most of the people that owned most of the land in Nevada lived in California in the San Francisco Bay Area. So Pat McCarran grew up hating these people, and he always ran against them. He ran against them as a populist Democrat, um, and he always lost because, you know, those those few people that ran Nevada, many of them out-of-staters, they always had a – they had a – political machine and they always made sure he lost. So that's why it took this, you know, cataclysm of the Great Depression because, you know, these these out-of-staters and these oligarchs in Nevada, they owned the banks. They were the ones that made predatory loans to the little ranchers and the little farmers and they confiscated their land when these people defaulted on their loans. Um, when the Great Depression came along, those banks failed. And so Pat McCarran ran against them and he got swept into office and the huge tidal wave that swept Franklin Roosevelt into the White House. And then those same oligarchs came along to Pat McCarran and they began to, you know, give him gifts and offer him mortgage relief and give him and his wife free cruises. And it's just a very classic story of somebody who had ran against the powers that be becoming just easily seduced by gifts and flattery and money and all other such things from the powers the, that the be. very thing he hated yeah he yep exactly he you know he completely turned against what he had been as a young man and he completely embraced uh you know taking the spoils that came along with with being a powerful politician so does that does that make senator mccarran in some ways a uh, uh, whether he's a gifted politician or manipulator of of public opinion or just simply someone who is willing to be bought. 
Well, I mean, who, who was it that, uh, what, was, what was the phrase? Was it uh, William Clark, the robber baron in Nevada that said, or in Montana, forgive me, who said, you know, I never bought a politician who wasn't for sale. Um, you know, Pat McCarran, yeah, I think he was uh, manipulative. And I think, you know, I just have to think that his, um, you know, his, his, you know, whatever motivated him, he was not really motivated out of an altruistic uh, desire to help people, to help struggling people. I think he was motivated by just being angry that he wasn't cut in on the deals of the spoils that, uh, you know, that, that people who had more money than him were getting. You know, I think it's interesting. And this is the other part of the story that I like. And of course, this is actually a very early part of your book, right? I mean, your book talks more about Dinosaur National mm-hmm. and Mothers later on. But but I think that it's this this first kind of foray into the ring, if you will, for Devoto against McCarran and eventually McCarthy uh, is is this the these oligarchs as you call them or these stock associations those kinds of things are are really cutting a lot of people out right Bernard Devoto or Bernard Devoto builds this coalition of of uh, small farmers mm-hmm. uh, water people mm-hmm. wildlife folks you know th- this is the thing that's going to happen and he motivates this almost like saying hey these people are not they're taking us. Mm-hmm. They're, what does he say? This is your, the, the sentence, this is your land. Yeah, this is your land we are talking about. That's why, I mean, that was really why uh, Bernard DeVoto was such a big public lands champion is because he, you know, he grew up in the West and he knew the work of Senator McCarran and his allies. And these were, you know, these were people monopolizing the West. These were, you know, a few people who were grabbing up because they had money all the private land that they could in the West, and they were pushing out, you know, struggling ranchers and struggling farmers, people who didn't have the money to buy the acres that had access to water. And so that's why Devoto was such a champion of public land is because it democratized access to water. You know, national forests are the watersheds. That's where water comes from. And on these, you know, Bureau of Land Management lands, um, before the, you know, the BLM came in and created the lease system where people got to lease grazing ranges, those ranges were just monopolized by whatever the biggest cattle or sheep association there was. So, yeah, the, you know, the the struggling agriculturalists, uh, you know, they, you know, th- you know, they were getting pushed out by the the land monopolists. But not only was it the struggling agriculturalists, it was also, you know, the hunters and the hikers and the, you know, Native Americans that wanted to collect uh, medicinal plants. All of these people, you know, all of these people had a common enemy in a keep out no trespassing sign hanging off a barbed wire fence. So that's why Devoto was a champion of public lands, because it brought together a diverse coalition of people that, you know, were able to use the land for, you know, multiple uses as the motto of the Forest Service is. Which is interesting because, you know, only 50, 60 years earlier, the cattle folks and the sheep folks were we're like war. killing each other, yeah, right? I mean, like yeah. lynching each other for Correct. for this land, and now they're they're united in this ultimate, as Bernard as Bernard Devoto calls it, the the land grab. Yeah. So, well, the other thing I like about is you in this book is you give you, they talk about the fan mail that Devoto gets, and there's this one woman who writes him about you know thanks for giving me a voice because McCar- talk about these these 
hearings that McCarran would hold in these places for the federal officials? Yeah, um, great question. I mean, this 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 is an insight into the way that Pat McCarran operated. It was very manipulative. It was very duplicitous. So, um, you know, in order to go to war against Franklin Roosevelt's conservation policies, um, Pat McCarran announced that he was going to do something that sounded very fair and democratic. He said he was going to go across the West and hold a bunch of uh, open public meetings where any citizen could come and voice concern about public lands. Um, But secretly, McCarran curated these meetings so that uh, only the people that he wanted to hear from, which were the West's biggest cattle ranchers and the West's biggest sheep barons, um, and again, these were the people that made the biggest campaign donations to Pat McCarran and gave Pat McCarran the most, the nicest suits and the nicest vacations. Pat McCarran made sure that these people got the best speaking times. He made sure that they got the longest speaking times. He would send members of his staff to go pay house calls to them and ask them, what do you want to talk about? What do you want Senator Pat McCarran to know. There are a bunch of examples I found. Some of these, you know, uh, uh, cattle kings said, you know, we, we, we're we not comfortable with public speaking. Pat McCarran would, would send members of his staff to their home ranches to walk them through and rehearse them and coach them on what to say at these McCarran hearings. So these were very rigged. They were very biased. And he, again, he d- diminished and dismissed the voices of people he didn't want to hear from. And this was a plurality of Westerners. These were uh, small ranchers and Native Americans and hunters and hikers and anglers and wildlife lovers and trade unionists and municipal water suppliers and irrigation farmers. And eventually, you know, as Pat McCarran became more powerful and more paranoid, he went from just diminishing and dismissing the voices of people he didn't want to hear from to demonizing them. He began to say that they were disloyal to America, possibly communists. So he really escalated in his, uh, you know, in, in his in his persecutorial mind. Which ties in again to the pre the post atomic world, right? The, yeah. the great enemy, mm-hmm. uh, and not only yeah. that, but he wouldn't. He'd invite. He, well, not invite because he controls the funding. Yeah. He commands, if you will, these government officials to come to these hearings, and then does not let them speak. Yeah, it's like you're going to come here and get beaten up. That's right. Yeah, during uh, the the McCarran hearings, you know, again, World War II came along, and with everybody distracted by a world war, McCarran really escalated those public land hearings that he was holding in the West and they turned sadistic. He used to, yeah, he used to order uh, employees of the U.S. Forest Service and the National Park Service and uh, uh, an agency called the Grazing Service, which he destroyed, which would become the BLM. He would order employees from those conservation agencies to attend his meetings and he would forbid them to speak and he would invite his hand-selected audience members to shout insults at them. Uh, One of McCarran's aides explained that the purpose was to affect these conservation professionals quote psychologically unquote so so i got i have to ask why yeah. why would these public land employees attend these things if, if yeah, well if a if a u.s senator if you work for the forest service and a senator says you have to be at my meeting like you know are are you going to tell right, a u.s right. senator okay. no yeah I guess, okay <laughs> yeah <so. laughs> that's why 
And it, they probably told somebody, and then it usually be, be the, the intern yeah. or the youngest member of the Forest Service has yeah. to go and sit listen. You know, and he would do so. He would make them drive him around. This was the time of gas rations and rubber rations because of World War II. He would make the Forest Service drive him around the West, even on personal trips. Um, so he was he was he was he was very crooked and very deceitful and very manipulative. Well, as we as we move into our our next break, let's talk about something that that can be uh, this song. It references something that can be crooked, but it's also oh, a very a, uh, <laughs> a uh, an un very unmacaron thing. Mm-hmm. But this is a, a song called Mountain Stream by you mm-hmm. th- that you did with a uh, with a group called the Demolition String Band. Yes, great so, friends of mine in New York. Yes. So why don't you? Uh, why don't you give us this little intro here? All right. Well, uh, uh, you know, uh, writing a book was kind of my plan B. I uh, tried to uh, do some music uh, in New York, and uh, I made a uh, record a couple years ago with a really cool producer, Eric Roscoe Amble. He used to play with Joan Jett and Steve Earls, produced a whole bunch of records. And um, this was a song that I wrote that uh, is kind of John Denvery, but it uh, it's about my favorite place in the world, a mountain stream. The best mountain streams, I believe, are on public land in the West and uh, playing uh, banjo and mandolin on this song are my friends uh, Boo Reiner and Elena Skye, better known as the Demolition String Band. And so uh, this was a really fun uh, project to do, uh, to record this um, this sort of pro-public land song that I wrote. All right. So this is Mountain Stream by Nate Schweber with the Demolition String Band. Hudson, ain't you grand with all your tugs and PCBs? Your water's always called out to my curiosity. We had some fun, but nowadays there's a place I'd rather be. High above the melee on a pristine mountain stream. Mountain stream. Running in my dreams. Far and wide Of every place I've seen Nothing moves me like A mountain stream I've been to London Paris too Trying to find my way I saw the Thames I saw the Seine On Lachon's all easy Everything's so interesting And I wished I belonged I didn't feel as good as on a mountain stream back home Mountain stream Running in my dreams I looked far and wide Of every place I've seen Nothing moves me like a mountain stream Inside, I hope I find the paradise I knew before I died. 
Heaven in its theory is a sure sight to be seen But I won't want to be there if it ain't a mountain stream Mountain stream Running in my dreams I looked far and wide Of every place I've seen Nothing moves me like a mountain stream Nothing moves me like a mountain stream. That was uh, Mountain Stream by Nate Schweber featuring Elena Sky and Boo Rainers. Um, this, you're listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Thank you, Evan. So again, we're here with Nate Schweber and our our uh, friend and colleague, uh, the academic coordinator for Outdoor Pathways, Kevin Kuntz. We, we've spent some time talking about Bernard DeVoto. I mean, mm-hmm. your book obviously features him significantly. We spent some time talking about his nemesis, mm-hmm. Pat McCarran, and, and those kinds of things. But but we should spend some significant some time talking about Avis DeVoto, yeah. who in her own right yeah. is, is as amazing and mm-hmm. as incredible and, in fact, I would argue that Bernard DeVoto can't really become Bernard DeVoto without Avis. Let's, let's talk about her. Yeah. Um, Avis DeVoto is totally awesome. And part of what was really exciting for me about uh, working on this project is, you know, I love, I love stories about conservation. I love books about conservation. Um, I'm grateful for all the conservation uh, uh, forefathers out there. There is something that a lot, and I'm not the first person to point this out, but there's a, there's a sort of a narrative that a lot of the foundational texts in conservation history have, which is of like generally a, a guy usually a white guy usually has a lot of money comes from the east into the west sees these incredible landscapes you know in the form of like teddy roosevelt to shoot a buffalo or john muir to exalt in the range of light the sierra nevadas and then dedicates their lives to saving it so i what i liked about this story about the devotos was it wasn't that it was really a story about an incredible marriage it was a it was a story about an incredible uh man and woman together who were both fighting for conservation so avis devoted you know Bernard DeVoto was a real uh, mercurial character. He was incredibly smart. Um, you know, he could get very angry. He uh, loved to eat. You know, he was not an easy person to be a partner with. So it took a very special person to be with him. And Avis DeVoto was his equal in every way. She was as smart as he was. He even said she could write better than he could. Um, but they had these ways that they really complemented each other because, you know, DeVoto loved to write. Avis loved to edit. DeVoto loved attention. Avis loved her privacy. Um, Devoto loved to eat. Uh, Avis Devoto loved to cook. So they really worked well together. And, uh, you know, so every word that, you know, ever got published under the name Bernard Devoto, it had been edited and critiqued and poured over by Avis. She checked all his facts. She did his indexing. Um, she also, you know, kept him sane. Uh, she kept him well fed. She raised their two sons. So she was an incredible woman. And, uh, you know, I, I tell the story in my book, uh, you know, as the um, as these conservation fights were heating up. Uh, Joe McCarthy began to attack magazines that published Bernard DeVoto and he started to get blacklisted and this is when Avis really stepped up and she started to suggest to Bernard DeVoto stories that he could write uh, sometimes under 
a pseudonym to compensate for his getting blacklisted. And so because of Avis, Bernard wrote about kitchen knives in Harper's Magazine, and that got him a fan letter from then-unknown Julia Child, who was living in France and dreaming about writing a cookbook. And Avis wrote to Julia, and Julia wrote Avis back, and they became best friends for the rest of their lives. And we've seen that friendship like depicted in pop culture a lot. It's in the movie Julia and Julia. It's in the HBO Max show Julia. It's been in books. It's been in other stuff. Which, which is funny. When you, when you were showing pictures of Avis yeah. and talking about her, her fashion sense, I immediately thought of B.B. Newworth uh, as Lilith That's from a, Cheers. Oh, wow. So when you showed yep. the clip of her from See? the HBO series, I was like, oh, yep. obviously I wasn't the only one who had that thought. This Some casting director saw her and thought, there you go. that's exactly. B.B. Newworth yeah. is, is Avis. So, you know, Avis just had this life force. She had this really striking, really strong personality, great sense of fashion, great sense of adventure. And um, and so, you know, we know, we, we, we know more about her great friendship with uh, Julia Child. But, you know, one of the things that I learned when I was researching this book is that, you know, she was able to be this incredible professional partner to Julia a child because she had already been this incredible professional partner to Bernard DeVoto. And, you know, Julia Child and Bernard DeVoto, they had certain things in common. They both were extremely forceful personalities. They both loved attention. This was, these were spaces that Avis felt very comfortable, um, uh, you know, being inside. She could be her own person. She could, you know, have her own opinions and thoughts, even though she was, you know, sort of this lesser known partner of a very uh, well-known and outspoken celebrity. So, um, you know, it was because of Avis DeVoto that uh, Julia Child got her breakout book deal. And uh, to the day she died, Avis was, you know, Bernard DeVoto died in 1955. Um, She and uh, Avis DeVoto and Bernard DeVoto had been married for 33 years. It was just devastating to her. Uh, She would die in 1989. So she lived, you know, another three plus decades. And, uh, you know, for the first part of her adult life, she was absolutely romantically and professionally devoted to Bernard DeVoto. And for the last uh, half of her adult life, she was absolutely professionally devoted to Julia Child. Um, all the Julia Child TV shows, Avis was behind the scenes. The books, she helped edit them. She helped conceive them. Um, Avis DeVoto was the only person who Julia Child deputized to answer her fan mail. And they actually spoke on the phone uh, the day before Avis DeVoto died. They were, you know, she was with Bernard DeVoto till death did them part. And she was then with Julia Child till death did them part. And I think there's interesting that, that so she, she says, hey, Bernard, write about kitchen knives. Because Avis DeVoto herself was a cookbook That's right. reader, right? Yep. And the editor. I mean, that was part of her gig, mm-hmm. bringing in money. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah, Avis was, ever since she was a little girl, she grew up on the northern peninsula of Michigan, and she was always fascinated with food. Uh, as a little girl, she remembered watching her mother cook. Uh, her father would hunt deer. Uh, she was interested in the recipes that they made, but also in the in the mining community that they lived in, in Houghton, Michigan. There were lots of immigrants from uh, England and Wales, and she was interested in and the the recipes that they made and how they changed when they, uh, you know, uh, sort of, you know, combined with um, influences from, you know, Native Americans and trappers in North America. Food just always fascinated her. So she she contributed to cookbooks. She wrote chapters for cookbooks. She collected cookbooks. This is in the 30s and the 40s. She 
you know, she loved to read cookbooks as we were chatting during one of the breaks on these road trips that they took across the country. Uh, you know, there was one where they ended up in a CCC cabin in the mountains of Idaho for days and days. And Avis went literally like she got cabin fever and all she was writing letters and saying that she just wished she brought some cookbooks that she could read up there. That would have made her happy reading cookbooks. That's her literature preference. Yeah. Yeah. Loves she. So she was always, she was always fascinated with food and with cooking. So again, you know, when, when, when Bernard DeVoto was looking for different types of things to write about because he was getting blacklisted after he wrote about conservation, Avis was right there pushing him to try writing about food and about, you know, the food culture. And of course, when that brought this, you know, then unknown Julia Child into their lives, she, you know, she was just primed to be Julia Child's best friend. Like she, you know, every, she was fascinated with everything Julia Child said. And Julia Child, you know, when she was working on her book from France, she would send her recipes to Avis Devoto to test them out, to make sure that the measurements were correct and that, you know, to make sure that the same ingredients that were available in France were available in America, to make sure that the, that the measurements that she calculated would translate, uh, you know, across the Atlantic. And so all this time that, you know, the Devoters are waging this epic fight against Joe McCarthy and, and, uh, and they're trying to save America's national parks, uh, all this while, you know, Avis is making Julia Child recipes for her whole family. And you can kind of see in the letters that this is Julia Child kind of puts it together because she wants to help Bernard DeVoto. And she figures it out like this is the way she can do it. She's like, this guy loves to eat. I know what he likes. I will send these recipes to Avis. Avis will make them for Bernard. That will be our part in this fight. You know, when we, we had been talking about this over the a little bit. And I actually had uh, looked up the, the name of that article. It's called The Paring Knife at the Crossroads <laughs> mm -hmm. by Bernard DeVoto in the April 1939 issue of well, Harper's. And in fair enough, he wrote he wrote about it. He wrote it. He was kind of a he was a consumer, you know, one of the many, many roles that he did. He uh, he was kind of like a consumer advocate. He was kind of, the you know, almost like a Ralph Nader type of figure uh, before his day. So he, he mentioned a bunch of consumer goods in that 1939 article, but then it was in 1952, it was called Crusade Resumed. And that's when he, came, you know, that's when Avis was like, no, write about kitchen knives. And uh, so he, you know, he, he made reference to that 1939 article, but he got in into it some more and that's when it came to Julia Child's attention. So let's uh, I find it just fascinating and actually quite uh, comforting for me that because you know I'm not a you know handsome man and, and my wife is amazing. So you're on the radio. Uh, Nobody knows yes, that. that's true. <laughs> so uh, but to have this you know Avis and certainly uh, not that looks are everything but these these folks look oh, yeah. it's like a Beauty and the Beast kind of a thing bit, in, yeah. in a little bit but <laughs> But, but she is devoted to him, mm -hmm. even when another arguably more handsome, more well-known guy tries to split them up. And, and maybe we should talk about well, that. Well, you know, they, they, you know they, had a, they had a great marriage. They had a successful marriage. They were married for 33 years. They were married till death did them part. They're also humans. And, you know, marriage, as we all know, all of us who are married, and Evan, you will soon learn when you are married. But marriage, marriage is totally awesome. It's the most rewarding thing in life. It also can be challenging. So, you know, uh, when the Devotos were together, um, they became friends in the 1930s with the poet Robert Frost. And initially this was like, you know, Bernard DeVoto thought Robert Frost was not only the greatest living 
American poet. He thought he was the greatest living American. But that friendship soon unraveled in, in pretty ugly and dramatic fashion. And Robert Frost, uh, he tried to come between the Devotos, and he tried to uh, he tried to tell Bernard Devoto that Avis uh, agreed with him, Robert Frost, and was against. Bernard Devoto, her husband, which was a real psychological, you know, a real psychological trip for Bernard Devoto. It, it, it was, you know, if you wanted to hurt Bernard Devoto, the way to do it would be to go after his, his relationship with Avis because she was his everything. And also at the same time, um, Bernard Devoto, he had a long relationship with another young woman. It was never a physical relationship. Uh, there was a young woman named Catherine Stern. She wrote for the New York Times when she was in her mid twenties. She got tuberculosis and she lived out the last, the rest of her life inside of an iron lung. And from there, she wrote Bernard Devoto a fan letter. And though they never met in person, they swapped hundreds and hundreds of intimate letters. And Avis knew about this, um, but and she was okay with it because she knew about just the the stress and the psychological uh, ordeals that Bernard Devoto was going through. How much they they shook him. She knew about his depressions. He was sometimes suicidal, and she was okay with anything that he did to to regulate his mood. So if it made him feel better to write Kate Stern a letter, she was okay with that. And then you know she would always be there talking to him and helping him get through his words and supporting him and you know helping him eventually raise his family. Yeah, it's just it's an amazing story of of all of, of, of the tale of how yeah. all of these folks kind of interact and work together. So let's move into our our, our last break before we get to the final segment. Uh, and the song that you've selected here is called "My Babe" yeah. by the great Little Walter. Yeah. Why don't you share us a little about it here? Um, well, um, th- uh, there's a scene in my book that is uh, takes place in a uh, private club in New York City. It's an old Jewish club. It's called the Harmony Club, and by uh, wonderful happenstance I actually got to go inside the Harmony Club um, because I you know as we learned when I got my song on the radio during that last break I, I play music and I was friends with the guy that managed the club and he needed a blues band to play a barbecue feast for the private exclusive club members one night so he asked me to do it so I got to go inside this club and we played a whole bunch of Little Walter's uh, songs and he's the greatest Chicago blues harmonica player that ever lived and uh, this is a song that uh, you know it, it also fits with the Devoto's relationship it's, uh, it's my babe and it's great my Babe by Little Walter. Mm-hmm. My baby don't stand no cheating, my babe. Oh, yeah, she don't stand no cheating, my babe. Oh, yeah, she don't stand no cheating. Don't stand none of that midnight creeping, my babe. True little baby, my babe. My babe, I know she'd love me, my babe. Oh, yes, I know she'd love me, my babe. Nothing but kissing, hugging my babe True little baby, my babe My 
My Babe by Little Walter, and you are listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Thank you, Evan. This is the last segment of our show, and if those of you who've heard it before listen to our podcast know, this is where we always talk about what's bringing us joy. So we'll start with you, uh, Nate Schweber. What are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? Uh, this is a tough one. I wish that I was listening to the new Rolling Stones album, but it doesn't come out till October 20th. So I think I'm going to have to go with the answer of the uh, the, uh, the TV show Reservation Dogs. Um, it's it's in the, the third season, just got released. Sadly, it's the last season, but I've loved every episode of every season. I don't want it to ever end, and I'm savoring this last season. It's on Hulu, right? I think so. Like yeah, I think so. But I've, it's, I've heard so many good things. I'm letting it pile up so yeah. I can do all of it at once. Yeah. There you go. It's a wonderful show. All right. Our good friend, uh, Kevin Kuntz, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? Uh, I've been watching the, the live action One Piece on, on Netflix and kind of on the side, I'm, I'm watching the animated and I'll catch up on the animated and then I'll watch the live uh, the live episode that kind of matches the the animated side of that no a uh, lot of fun it's it's pirates with superpowers uh which i had no familiarity with it going in so i've enjoyed it is it a kid's show uh no no not necessarily there's there's some, some adult themes one piece all right all right evan miller what are you currently watching reading listening to or playing that is bringing you joy Currently, uh, my fiance and I have been watching true crime docuseries on Netflix, which are honestly, it's it's been fun because they're kind of like puzzles. Like it kind of brings you along right when they're solving the crime, but they're not the most uplifting things to watch necessarily. Um, but it's been a fun way just kind of because it's hard to watch like full series, just been busy. Um, and so just like little episodes of something here and there has been fun. But yeah. All right, Ryan Paul, what have you been watching, reading, or listening to that is bringing you joy? I uh, am late to the party here, but I am discovering and watching Star Wars Rebels. Oh, so, yeah. So, I uh, I mean, I've been, I mean, I, I'm a 70s kid. I saw Star Wars in the theater, you know, but I, I've been coming to this. I, I didn't, I didn't see it all when it came, I didn't see it when it came out. I wasn't an episodic guy at that moment, uh, but 
but Ahsoka's come out now, and I I don't I have a good friend who says you shouldn't watch that until you finish right. Rebels. It is the it is Ahsoka is the is the sequel to Rebels, and right. and I will argue Rebels is the best of the the Star Wars animated. So I saw Clone Wars. Uh, I was a little concerned at the first season of Rebels that it was going to be more you know like TV seven kid stuff, but. But as it moves further, it gets pretty complex mm-hmm. and pretty intense. So that's what I'm watching that's bringing me me joy. So with that, uh, we want to thank Nate Schweber for being here, from traveling all the way from New York to, to chat with us. And, and please pick up his book. Uh, we're thankful for Kevin for being here. Uh, we miss our, our producer, Sophie, who couldn't be here today. And Evan, uh, we're here as well. Thank you, Nate. Thank you all. This has been really fun. And, and thank you. We're going to go out with uh, the last song, which is the very classic Route 66 by the indomitable and incomparable Nat King Cole. Do you want to say anything about it? Yeah. Um, uh, I actually uh, uh, <laughs> I had to license this song so I could quote some lyrics from it in my book because I was talking earlier about this great road trip that the Devotos took in 1946 that you know changed their lives because they found this great public land scoop. But there were so many people taking road trips in 1946. World War II had just ended. And this song, Route 66, was written on a road trip uh, from Pennsylvania to California by the songwriter Bobby Troop, and by the end of 1946, Nat King Cole had the first hit with it, and it would later be a hit uh, for Chuck Berry and the Rolling Stones, but this is the first one. All right, so thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. This is Route 66 by Nat King Cole. <laughs>